always a problem. If the little green light is not on. Thank you. But we are moving briskly along in the Gospel of John. And I hope that over our little bit of a break, as we kind of focus on Christmas and even a New Year's message last week, that, that maybe some of you are a little excited to get back into the Gospel. You see, we are a community to worship we love to pray, we love to sing and praise and open up God's Word. We love to be able to focus with people and help families be able to know and obey and enjoy Christ so that we can make Him known. And we love to be able to hear the Apostle John's perspective of Jesus. He's given us some snapshots of Jesus. John was a man's man. He was a fisherman, and he flat out loved God. He did. He loved Jesus, and he wrote this gospel near the end of his death. In fact, it was the last gospel written. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the synoptics. And they were written a little bit earlier with a little bit different perspective. But John... He had an agenda, and it's found in chapter 20, verse 31. And he said this, I wrote this so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. Well, we're going to show you a short clip. It's Aspen. And we have asked different people to be able to, well... Share this verse, learn this verse, and some of you, as I said, have been very obedient and done that and sent me some clips. I have three clips, but today we're going to have Aspen share John chapter 20, verse 31. Aspen. John 20, verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I think Aspen did that in front of her Christmas tree. What do you think? <laughs> you know, each week we watch Jesus and learn from Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Rabbi, the Savior. Jesus came to earth seeking out the lost, seeking out the wandering, and offering them hope. We have found out so, so far in the Gospel of John that there are lost religious leaders who are dead. And Jesus offered them life. There were lost non-religious neighbors who were really thirsty. And Jesus offered them water, living water. We've seen the disciples, well, they're aimless. But he offers them an assignment and gives them a purpose for getting up each day. We've seen a desperate dad who had a sick son. And Jesus healed him. And we've seen a man who was sick for 38 years. Living with no hope. Except Jesus came on the scene. And touched him. In our last study six weeks ago, Jesus went toe-to-toe -to -toe with the 
Pharisees. If you recall, the Pharisees are these religious leaders. They focused a whole lot on their man-made laws, and they were literally livid with Jesus. They were really mad. Jesus had broken their Sabbath rules and made claims that he was equal with God. At the end of chapter 5, Jesus makes seven audacious claims about himself and reveals five powerful witnesses that he is Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. These claims pushed the Pharisees over the edge. They did. But John continues to rant about Jesus. The miracle we're going to focus on today is the fourth miracle that shouts that Jesus is Messiah. This miracle, and actually the miracle of the resurrection, are the only two miracles that are listed in all four of the Gospels, which should say something to us. There were more people present at this miracle than any other recorded one in the Scriptures, perhaps 20,000 people. I've asked Ethan to read for us John chapter 6 verses 1 through 13. If you want to turn your Bibles there, John chapter 6. If not, you can follow along up on the screens. Ethan. After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. Turning to Philip, he asked, Where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip, for he already knew that what he was going to do. Philip replied, Even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish, but what good is that with this huge crowd? Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. Afterward, he did the same with the fish, and they all ate as much as they wanted. After everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, Now gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps, left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. Let's pray. Lord, this is a really familiar story to many of us who've kind of grown up in the church. It's a story that uh, even maybe some of our neighbors know, where Jesus was up on this hillside and and fed 5,000 men. And then there were children and and women. And God, we sometimes, too, with uh, these familiar stories, um, we have a tendency to skip over them. We know what it's all about. We, We don't need to really read them again. We know that you're an awesome God and you're a big God and you can do whatever you want. But God, we think there's a whole lot more here for us today. So we pray as we begin this brand new year that you would use this message to ignite us, that you would use these words, Father, to help us understand who you are and what you want to do with each one of us. Lord, I'm grateful for each one who made 
well, the trip today. They could have been doing a lot of other things. When we pray, Father, that your spirit would be so abundantly active to convict and to encourage and to strengthen and to even break the shackles, Father, that, well, maybe some are are dealing with. Lord, we think of all the other churches in our neighborhood and and in our county and, and in our state, and we pray, dear God, for each one of those as they begin their new season, as they begin to proclaim your word powerfully, that your word would transform us and change us and that your kingdom would come. It would move forward that everywhere we go, God, that, that we would have an opportunity to mirror you well. We pray that. We pray that we would understand better who you are today. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, a lot has happened between the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. There's probably been at least six months or more that have passed. Now, when we started this series, we encouraged you to either get a study Bible or pick up one of the harmonies of the gospel. And we have more of those printed, and they're out in the lobby, but it will be able to help you, well, put in perspective how all this comes together. Because although our Western minds, we love to be able to have, okay, this happened first, this happened second, this happened third. We're big on chronology. Well, the Gospels, all written in different perspectives and all focusing on different incidents, show us that, whoa, there was a lot of time between chapter 5 and chapter 6. We know that Jesus was probably completing his second year of ministry. He was here approximately three years working, modeling, preaching, healing, encouraging, before he was crucified on the cross. So he lived about 30 or so years as a normal, well, little guy at first, turned into a carpenter. And so during this time, he had already been spent, or he's already spent time with people, about two years of preaching and teaching and encouraging His reputation was growing, and why wouldn't it have been? Who could do the things that Jesus did? Of course, there wasn't Twitter or the Internet, but word spread, and it spread quickly. There were thrill-seekers and fans among the crowds. He had already picked his disciples, so, so at least this last year, he was just pouring himself into these guys. Probably spent the last 18 months, half the time, just pouring into these 12 guys. He was modeling kingdom ministry. He was preaching good news and healing the broken. In Matthew 14, Mark 6, and Luke 9 If you would read through those texts, you would get a more complete picture on what happened on this hillside. And I think it's important for us to be able to understand the whole picture in order to understand what John is emphasizing here. But let's try to understand this miracle in its full context. Just before this miracle happened, 
We know that Jesus had received the news that John the Baptist's senseless beheading had happened. The scriptures tell us that he wanted to be alone. Remember, John was his cousin. John was the one that God so ordained that was preaching the message, hey, I'm just the person making you aware the Messiah is right around the corner. Jesus himself said he was the greatest of all men because of his humility and because of his faithfulness of preaching and teaching. What God had asked him to do kept pointing to the Messiah, not pointing to himself. It kept gathering people and pushing them toward Jesus. Some of you know what happened, especially if you read in the book of Mark. But John was in prison and Herod was a king. And there was some party that was going on with Herod and, and he uh, invited some dancing girls and, well, one of them pleased him greatly. And Herod just said, hey, what do you want? I'll give you whatever you want. You're an amazing dancer. And I'm not sure what that dance was, but it must have been amazing. And she simply said this, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. Whoa. <laughs> really? Out of everything in the whole world, you, you want that. It doesn't make much sense to me, and I'm sure you struggle with that. So at the whim of a little girl, the greatest man on the planet gets killed. It did bother Jesus. It hurt Jesus. I'm sure he, he uh, fully human and fully God, had a grief. And so that's what he wanted to do, is spend some time alone. But he also knew that his disciples were returning from their mission. He had just recently sent them out two by two and shared with them and gave them power and authority and wanted to have them spread out, not just hang out with him. They had learned some really important things, but now he said, you know what, let's go practice what you've learned. And in Mark chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, Mark writes this, So the disciples went out telling everyone they met to repent of their sins and turn to God. That was the message of the kingdom. And they cast out many demons and healed many sick people, anointing them with olive oil. So these guys were working. These guys were out there doing ministry. They were experiencing God's power within them. And just like any other good teacher, it was time for them to come back. It was time for them to share the stories, to be able to hear what God had been doing. All right? Now, Jesus had hoped to be alone with them. But it seems clear he wasn't going to be alone. But he still had them gather around. No one would say that grieving or training were unimportant. They were very important and necessary. But what's so cool, and one of the things that just stuck out to me, like a billboard, God, his Father, changed his plans, and Jesus was ready for the detour. 
It was really apparent as we read through this and as you see the other text, he couldn't shake the crowds. And even at this time when he wanted to be alone, the crowds are gathering. Instead of being indignant or instead of saying, hey, wait a minute, God, I am just worn out. We've been doing a lot of this ministry. My buddies have been doing it. I've been doing it. I'm just depleted. No one would argue with that. But the crowds are coming, and the scriptures use words like this, that Jesus welcomed them in spite of how tired he was. And he began to teach, and he began to heal, and bodies and souls were being mended. And this gathering, if you could picture it, started getting larger and larger and bigger. Well, nobody thought that they would stay that long, except for the lad who had a doting mother. Not sure if he was even planning to go be part of this group, but just like any good young man, he listens to his mom and puts in his pail, well, some crackers and some fish. The disciples finally came to Jesus after a long day, a lot of things that were happening. And I'm thinking that the disciples maybe didn't think Jesus was that sharp, okay? And just kind of went up and said, hey, Jesus, it's getting a little bit late in the day. How about if we send him home? These guys got to be hungry. They've been listening to you all day. You've been working hard. How about it? Let's send him home. And in our scripture, Jesus asked Philip, and nobody, there's not a commentary out there that gives any good reason. Nobody knows why Philip, maybe he was standing next to Jesus at the time. I don't know. But he asked Philip, he goes, where can we buy bread? Oh, in other texts, we get the feeling that Jesus expected the disciples to feed the crowds. We know John gives us a little more insight here, and he says that Jesus was just testing the disciples. Say, well, 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 you know, I thought Jesus was just this really nice guy, cool guy, you know, tests for me. Man, if it was test day, that was a tough day, you know. Like, I sort of enjoyed school all the rest of the days. But test day? Are you serious? I'm sure I was sick. Something had to happen, you know. But tests, if you look at it, and good teachers, it's not about grades. It isn't. (laughs) I know you wish all your teachers knew that. But tests are not about grades. They show progress. They actually show what you've learned. Now remember, they had just returned back from their ministry tour. They had experienced God at work. And Jesus baited the hook. But they didn't bite. They knew nothing was impossible for God. In fact, if he had gathered them around and just says, hey guys, just want to ask you a quick question before we start talking and ministering to all these, well, eventually 20,000 people. Do you guys think there's anything I can't do? Every one of them. No way! Jesus, you're the man! We know anything is possible for you. We would all say that probably here. Anything is possible for you. So they knew 
Nothing was impossible for God. Yet they were thinking in terms of what they had to offer and what could be accomplished through natural means. I just want you to know, they aren't the only ones that think that way. Right? We've been given tasks often. And we even look at what assignments we have been given by God. Almost all the time we say, yeah, God, you could do that. And maybe you're going to use somebody else. But you know something, God? I'm not smart enough. I don't have enough funds. I don't have the talent. God, really? Isn't that something that God doesn't ask about all those things? They answered Jesus, and the answer was totally accurate. It just was the wrong answer. Their answer required little faith and a lot of personal effort or sacrifice. I mean, if anybody would have answered that, we probably would have been pleased with that answer. I mean, you know, Jesus, it'll take us a little bit of time. It might take us months and months and months to recoup. We'll eventually get the money. But yes, Jesus, if you say we should feed these dudes, let's do it. I don't know. Jesus moved forward with grace. He was changing a paradigm. He was modeling for them how faith in God works. Now, I got to tell you this. This is a classic, and it's in all the other texts. But Andrew sheepishly tells Jesus. He steps forward. And he's talking about feeding, and this is a good thing. And he goes, hey, Jesus, Jesus, just, just want you to know. On my way here, there was a dude, he had this little lunch bucket. And I said, hey, what, what, what do you got in there? He goes, well, I got some, some fish and some bread. And so Jesus, um, we do have some food. Although I don't know what that is going to do. I mean, seriously, a happy meal for 20,000 people. That, I mean, I'm not even so sure you can get a whiff, you know, of that. You know, I stopped into my, uh, my grandson's house yesterday just for a moment, and it was just about before one of the, the football games was going to be played, and he was sitting there watching, and, and all of a sudden there was an advertisement from McDonald's that came out of the TV, and it was about a Happy Meal, like a one, two, three dollar deal or something like that. And I looked at Joey, and I said, Joey, I'm going to be talking about a Happy Meal tomorrow. And he goes, you are not. I said, hey, cut me some slack here, Joey. I am. It's how God fed 20,000 people with a Happy Meal. And he looks right at me and goes, Grandpa, it wasn't a Happy Meal. It was some fish and some bread. You know what? Dude, lighten up. Okay? It was a Happy Meal. Impossible. Impossible. Now, to everybody's surprise, Jesus tells everyone to sit down. So again, 
thousands of people sit down. Jesus takes that few morsels. He holds them up to his father. He thanks the Lord. Then he breaks the bread and then divides the fish, which literally looks a little bit more like the meal up up there. They were a little bit more like crackers. They weren't like your big Panera loaves. All right? And the fish were really more like sardines. Now, if you're not into sardines, I'm sorry. It just wasn't supposed to feed that many. But Jesus did. He gave thanks. And he asked the disciples to distribute them to these groups of 50 and 100. And what's so cool in every one of the accounts, the scripture says this, they all ate their fill. Then Jesus told the disciples to gather up the leftovers. Now because so many of you heard this story, you're going, okay, that's, that's nice, Rick. But I got to ask you, aren't you in shock? If, if you really are just working this through, aren't you in shock? Because this doesn't happen. It doesn't. This was an unbelievable miracle that showed that Jesus was God. There is so much here. But what I'd actually like to do is just ask the question, what did we learn about Jesus and from Jesus from this story? First thing, My plans may be good, but they might not be God's plans. So be ready for detours, even delight and welcome detours. Now, I don't know how how you guys are each one made up. I don't. But I know this. There are some people that just need to know the plan. Like, when are we going to have breakfast? Like just 10 minutes, an hour, four hours, just give me the plan. When are we going to leave? When do we have to be at school? How does this happen? Even when you're on vacation, okay, let's plan it out. At 8 o'clock we do this, at 9 o'clock we do this, at 10 o'clock we do this. Now there's others that say, I don't give a rip, you know. I just want to end up at the ocean and whatever the deal is. But I know this, every one of us somehow have expectations, some more than others. And those that have to know every minute of every day, whoa, it's hard to listen to God sometimes. Maybe it's just a little bit easier for those others. But if you have a plan, and you have a schedule, and you've got it all marked out, sometimes it's really hard for God to jump in. I've got to be honest really is. But what was so cool is that Jesus was literally going to spend some time by himself grieving and just hearing from God. Then he was going to work with his disciples and he tossed all that aside because all these people came. Great needs. And he changed in a heartbeat and he began to welcome them and literally spent the whole day teaching and ministering. Wow. 
Jesus was so connected that his detour almost looked like the plan. And if Jesus hadn't been walking with the Father, and I know that's kind of hard for us to all kind of figure out, right? Because he's God. But if he wasn't walking with the Father, thousands would have been affected. Truth wouldn't have been heard. Hearts and bodies would not have been changed. And there would have been so many people missing the experience of God. And that hit me. It hit me that maybe sometimes my own selfishness or my own lack of sensitivity or my own ability not to walk with God because I want to do my own thing. Now maybe there's not 20,000 people that I'm going to affect today. But how many will I miss out because I didn't spend time with my Lord today. Because my schedule is so busy that I don't even listen to Him. Then I don't even get the hints. You know? I mean, how many times literally have we been standing in line at Walmart and just wanting to get through the line? But there's a big delay. Oh, do you believe this? I, no, I, I, I don't believe it. It's a very long line. It's the longest line I've ever seen, God says. I wonder why you're in that line. Whoa, I don't know. But wouldn't that be cool if we all knew why we were in that really, really long line? Oh, my daughter just got in a fender bender. Not my real daughter. I'm just kind of like talking right now. What does that mean? Well, nobody was hurt. Good. But what has God planned for you? Wait, wait a minute. She was kind of an idiot, so I don't think God has any plans for being an idiot. Oh, no, no, no. We're all really good at being idiots. Just so you know. And God's bigger than all those plans. And even when... We don't know why certain things happen. Isn't that cool? Second thing, God wants each of us to grow in our faith. I can tell you right now, from your pastor, everyone else in this room, I need to grow in faith. My faith is not where God wants it. I, I, I'm just telling you. He wants us to trust Him differently than we trust Him right now. And I don't know if God gives you words for New Year's or whatever, but, but this might be just a perfect thing to kind of put up on the bathroom mirror. God, you want me to grow in faith this year. What's it going to look like today? How am I going to trust you differently today than I did yesterday? You know what's so cool? Jesus didn't reprimand the disciples even though they just had this great ministry trip. And say, you big goofs! Why don't you ever trust me? He just said, hey, I'm going to tell everyone to sit down. Let me divide all this. Watch what happens. He accepted them where they were, but he didn't let them stay where they were. 
You know what? That's the gospel. The gospel receives everyone. The gospel says, I love you, God says. And I want you to become part of my family. But I don't want you to stay where you're at. I don't want you to be an infant in your faith all your life. See, even when the food was multiplied, Jesus didn't provide all the food at once. Isn't that cool? He let the disciples in there. I mean, he literally, if he wanted to, could have blinked, right? And forget the few fish and uh, crackers. Let's have a lobster meal. Uh, well, I don't know. Jews, can they eat lo- I don't know. What? All I'm saying is it could have been a lot different. He goes, no. I'm going to use what this little boy has. You guys are all going to have the opportunity to watch people's eyes open and jaws drop. And i got to believe it was the best bread and fish they ever had. I do. You see, faith grows by hearing and knowing and obeying the truth. It's by listening to Jesus in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. But the author of Hebrews gets a little bit more persnickety. And I don't even want to be persnickety on this verse Sunday, but, but you know what? It, this verse didn't go away and all the time I was preparing. And God's desire is that we grow, that we don't remain babies. There's not a person here that just says, you know what, I just want to live life in diapers. I just really, I love baby food, that straining stuff, and I just love just oozing it right in, you know. I mean, formula, it's like dynamite. Why would I want to walk? Why would I want to drive? Why would I want to shoot basketballs? Why would I want to even read? I'm just going to sit there, cry, and sleep, and eat. Say, no. But see, that's how some of us want to be spiritually. Hey, I don't want to really grow too much in this whole relationship with Jesus. I just want to sit there. I just want to be a baby, not enjoy all that God wants. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, and you can see it on the screen. The author says this, there's much more than we'd like to say about this, but it's difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull. That means you don't spend time with me, and you don't receive what I give you, and you don't seem to listen. You've been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others or discipling others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's Word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk and is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who love training and have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. You know, we have been encouraging you to read and listen to the Scriptures. We have a plan out in our lobby again that you can take and begin to spend time every single day with God. And you open that, and He asks you to do certain things. And we have a choice. Do we listen Do we spend time with God? No follower of Jesus drifts into maturity or stumbles into the adventure. Do you know that? 
Some of us think that, whoa, we'll meander into, well, I come to church every single Sunday. Maybe not here, but somewhere. It's nice. I'm, I'm excited. You can tell. Because I want you here or somewhere. But you know what I want a whole lot more? I don't want you just to come and get one meal a week. Just to praise our almighty God because he is worthy of our almighty praise. I want you to spend time with him. I want you to grow in your faith. I want you to mature. I want you to be able to disciple others. Help them in their growth. Be able to have them walk. Isn't it fun as you have little ones around that you encourage them in just little things? You tied your shoe? Whoa, that is so cool. I never have to tie your shoe again. Even though it takes you an hour to tie your shoe, I'm so glad that you tie your shoe. I'll just tell you 15 minutes ahead of time before we have to leave. Well, really, if they're 16, it takes 15 minutes to tie their shoes still. That's a rough one. That's all I can say. But by that time, they're really good, you know? You don't even have to tell them to tie their shoes or put their shoes. Well, sometimes you do. But that is so cool. You know, lastly, what got me excited about this story is that God uses the ordinary to accomplish his mission, his assignment. And I'll tell you, that gets me more excited than anyone, anything else. God used the obedient in spite of their weak faith. God used the weak. Look at all the way through the scriptures as you open them up this year. You're going to see Abraham, literally a doofus, that God chooses to pour himself into and start an unbelievable nation. Gideon, read through the scriptures. Like, what did God have to do to get Gideon to listen? Well, I'm the smallest family in the smallest tribe, and I'm really not worth much. Yes, but that's exactly who I want. David, a man after God's own heart. What was he, a shepherd? A shepherd. A lowlife. An ordinary person. How cool. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes this, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose the things of this world he considers foolish in order to shame those who he think are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring nothing that the world would consider important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. I love it. One of my favorite metaphors of me, well, actually of Christians, is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars. Oh. What are you? Fragile clay jar? Seriously? Yeah. Not much to look at. Not very strong. 
Somebody drops you, it's in a million pieces. Fragile. But you know what God says? When people look at you, when people look at Rick, they would say, oh my word. God must be an amazing God because look at what he is doing. It's not him. He's not smart enough. He's not sharp enough. He's not strong enough. Hey man, he grew up in the city of Chicago. What good can come from that? Seriously. God gets great glory anytime I listen and am obedient, just like you. My question is this What has God planned for us, for you, in 2018? I hope you don't shortchange yourself. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for giving us a story which we love to tell little kids. And we love to talk about your power. And we love, dear Father, to be able to sit back amazed at what you did thousands of years ago and forget you are the same God today. You are a God that wants us so dependent on you so that we can listen carefully to whatever assignment you give us and we welcome the changes or the direction so that people might experience you. Because that's what our job is. That's what our privilege is, is that we walk around being salt and light. We walk around, Father, Well, helping others see who you are. We keep pointing people to you. Thank you. I also know, Father, you want us to grow in in faith. You don't want us to stay babies. You want us to be so mature and to be able to reproduce and be able to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. God, thank you for giving us An unbelievable privilege. Lord, we know more than anything is that you love using normal people. Not really people that are just so gifted and so wealthy and, well, you just put it in, but but just normal people that love you and desire to do what you say. Father, would we be ignited, not only as individuals, not only as families, but as a church this 2018. Would you receive unbelievable glory? We love you, Lord. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen.